Jesus as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to give to us in all of the scriptures, but in this chapter in particular, John chapter 11, the life-giving word of God from Jesus our Lord, who himself is the resurrection and the life. This is our fourth sermon now from John chapter 11, and feel free to follow along in your own Bibles or the bulletins or on page 898 of those blue Bibles. This morning, I'm going to begin reading at verse 38, and I will continue to verse 53 of the Word of God. Hear this portion of it. Then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death, unbound. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this precious word. Thank you for all that you teach us through your word. Thank you that you have changed us and transformed us and given to us life by this word, which by the power of your Holy Spirit has been worked into our hearts so that we, by your grace, have come to believe that it's true. Would you work that again within us today? Encourage us. Lift us up. Save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened? 
when Lazarus came out? What was that moment like when he comes out of the tomb after having been in there for four days? What did Martha and Mary do right then? Did they run up and hug him? Were they the ones who ran up and took the linen cloths off of him? Did they, did they turn and hug Jesus? Where, where are all those tears? We've been talking about tears for two weeks. We've been talking about their sorrow for three weeks. What happened at that moment? Were there more tears? Tears of joy? Tears of bewilderment? When they were looking at their brother now raised from the dead, did they sing? What did everybody do? Did they ask Lazarus, where have you been? Did you go to heaven? You know, people write books about their time of having died and having gone to heaven. Lazarus, did you see a light? Did you, did you hear singing? Did you see angels? What, where have you been? What was it like, Lazarus, to die? What was it like, Lazarus, to be dead? And what was it like when you heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come out? Tell us about it. Tell us the story of what it was like, Lazarus. We want to hear. Did Lazarus fall at his feet? Nothing. Nothing. We do not know the answer to any of those questions. All, all along through this story, we have seen not only what the Lord has been doing in preparation for it, but we have been incredibly close to all of the people in the story. We've been kind of let into their hearts along the way from the disciples to, of course, especially Martha and Mary who were there. But when it comes to this event itself and when Lazarus comes out, then we know nothing at all. It's, it's clear, right? Something happened. So, something must have gone on at that moment. And it must have been pretty great. It surely was extraordinary. It was wonderful. And I think we can say this in the absolutely appropriate use of the word. It was surreal. <laughs> what is happening right now before us? How is this happening? We've, we've thought you were dead for four days and now you are alive. Now, the Holy Spirit, as he's, he's inspiring John to write this, will take us, uh, well, next week, next chapter, back to uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and we'll get to see another scene with them. But at, at this point, at this point in the story, and as the story comes to its conclusion, the Holy Spirit has something else that he wants us to see. He, he wants us to direct our attention elsewhere, not on all that we've been looking at, not on, on just the human side of this story as it took place right at this particular time. I, I want us to walk through this passage today as if, as if we were one of the bystanders who is watching this take place and kind of commenting to one another, observing it. And, and as each thing takes place, we lean over to one another and say, what about this? Okay, so, so observations as if we were the ones who are watching this take place today, this remarkable scene. First observation is this. First observation is Lazarus is really dead. 
He's really, really dead. He did not die a few moments ago. He's not in a coma. He's not sleeping. He's not mostly dead. He's really dead. He's fully dead. He's wholly dead. He's four days dead and buried. I I think this is an interesting way of phrasing it, and I tried to to read it this way in the uh, reading, verse 39. Martha, the sister of not Lazarus, but to emphasize the point, Martha, the sister of the dead man. Just in case somewhere along the way we had missed the point of the story, he doesn't even get a name at that stage. He's the, she is the sister of the dead man. He is unequivocally dead. And so Martha says in response to his demand, command, take away the stone, Lord, Lord, there's going to be an odor. This is not good. Decomposition will have started, and when you're dead, you're dead. And so Martha is resigned to the reality. She's resigned to the irreversibility of death. It is what it is. Had you been here, you know, a few days back, maybe we could have avoided this, but now, now, It is what it is, and she is abhorred with the idea of moving this stone. Herman Ritterboss, one of the writers that I've loved on this chapter in particular, notes that to her, to to Martha that is, a miracle at this stage seems to be not only impossible, but it would seem to be absurd. It's It's just ridiculous to even contemplate some miracle of restoration at this point. He is really dead. That's our first observation. Second observation, as we're looking at the scene. What Jesus is about to do with this dead man is really, in fact, marvelous. But it is not the end. It it is not the goal for which he is working. The end of this story, the purpose of this story, the goal of this story, the goal, the end of his resurrection is not the raising of Lazarus. That's approximate end. It's not the end. The end is the glory of God. The glory of God is the end for which God created the world. It is our chief end, and it is the chief end of this resurrection. We're observing the scene. We see Jesus lean over to Martha and say in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's what you're going to see here, Martha. You are about to see the glory of God on display. Isaiah had prophesied, right, 600 years before, 700 years before this. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So here they are, standing at the tomb. John opened this fourth gospel with many great words, but amongst them was the Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. 
after, this is the seventh sign that John records for us after the first sign, which you'll remember was the changing of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. We read this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Ritterboss, again, is brilliant here. And I'm going to read an extended section from how he comments on this manifestation of the glory of God. What's he talking about, the glory of God, that we'll see? Ritterboss. We see here the continuation of what characterizes the entire passage. Jesus sharing in the grief of Lazarus's relatives and friends. We also learn that he, as the one sent by the Father, was moved to resist the demonstration of human impotence in the face of death as though it had the last decisive word in the world. To break this spell, he strides to the tomb, not in the sovereign apathy of the great outsider, but as the one sent into the world by the Father as the advocate who has entered human flesh and blood. Accordingly, it is not only from his divine authority, but also from his deep human involvement in the death of his friend, that at the sight of the large stone that is intended to close off Lazarus's tomb forever is evoked from him the measured, almost gruff command to the bystanders, take away the stone. It is as if in these words a kind of tension is being relieved. relieved. Enough now of tears and wailing. Enough honor has been bestowed on death. Against the power of death, God's glory will enter the arena. End quote. Third observation. The third observation comes with observing or hearing the prayer that our Lord offered at this time. Verses 41 and 42. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And so we're being directly addressed here as the bystanders, right? Jesus is praying aloud, not because he needs to pray aloud for God to hear him, not because he's enamored with the sound of his own voice, but instead for the sake of those who are around him. Why does he do it? Why pray aloud? Well, first of all, to, in the presence of everyone who is around, give thanks and praise and credit to his Father. He's not going to do this miracle on his own, nor even take credit for it on his own, as if he was the only one involved in what was going on here. Instead, as soon as we thank someone for doing something, we have given credit to the other person 
for helping us, for doing something for us. And as soon as Jesus does that publicly, the eyes are focused not only upon Jesus, but upon the Father as well. And what we as a result see, once again, as we've seen so many times in this gospel, is this alignment that exists between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. The Son does what the Father commands. The Father gives to the Son, and we see them lined up together. Secondly, why does Jesus pray aloud? Listen, we know from our own experience and from the words and the teaching of our Lord Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is possible to pray, it is especially possible to pray publicly, aloud, in a way that is designed to impress other people, to use words and expressions and length of time uh, in a way that's designed to say, look at what I've got in terms of my relationship with God, look at the way that I can pray. Are you impressed with the way that I pray? That kind of praying separates It separates the prayer, well, it separates the prayer from God, but it separates the prayer from also the people who are around him. I thank you that I'm not like other people is another way to put it. But here, Jesus prays aloud, and and D.A. Carson is great on this, and his intention is not to separate, but rather to invite those who hear into the intimacy of his relationship with the Father. What he's exposing as he prays aloud, as he says, Father, I know that you always hear me, is, is first of all, as we're sitting there looking at it and listening to it, wow, this person has an extraordinary relationship with the Father. And then Jesus says, but I've prayed aloud that those who are here, that's us, those who are here might also believe. In other words, the prayer itself is an invitation into the intimacy. Jesus could have done it quietly. None of us would have heard it. But the intimacy is allowed by the fact that he prays out loud, and so we can join in and be part of it. So, so far then, we've got three observations. One, he's really dead. Two, glory is on display. And three, his prayer as an invitation into Uh, I'll use the Chesterton phrase, into the romance of orthodoxy. The prayer's an invitation into the romance of orthodoxy. Fourth observation, the resurrection. Lazarus, come out. Unbind him and let him go. Death cowers before I am. Death surrenders before I am the life, death caves in and spits out because it's forced to before the one who says, I am the resurrection. To bring this in with another saying of Jesus earlier in the other Gospels, the strong man has been bound. Satan has been bound. Death has been bound. And now, because the strong man has been bound, the God-man goes into the house of death to plunder. To plunder. To take out those who would otherwise be the treasure 
the claim of death. Lazarus, bound by death. Lazarus, bound by these linen cloths that are wrapped all around him, around his body, around his feet, around his arms, around his face, even the clothes of death. Lazarus bound is then loosed. Unbind that one who has been bound. Set him free. Behold then the glory of God. Behold the glory of God as the one speaks into death and sets us free. Behold the life-giving, death-shattering power and authority of the life-giving Word of God. Jesus speaks, and it happens. He speaks, and listening to His voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble, poor believe when He speaks. That's the authority of the one who is the Word of God. John has taken us through seven signs showing what one writer calls, in fact, the raw authority that belongs to Jesus, our Lord, over all of the elements, over water, over hunger, over creation, over sickness, over paralysis, over blindness, and there's one thing that is left. Does he have authority over this last thing that seems to have authority over everything else? Does he have authority over death? Yes. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Jesus will set his people free, will set us free, will set you free from all that binds. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But right at this point, we have to remember that when we're looking at this, when we're observing the resurrection of Lazarus, we are observing, in fact, the sign and not the destination. The sign and not the destination. The sign is in designed to invite us beyond the sign. Right? The sign doesn't point to itself. The sign is pointing us to somewhere else. Lazarus has been raised to what has been called a resurrection of mortality. Because Lazarus would die again. I, I, when, we were, when we were singing the second hymn today, My Jesus, I, I Live to Thee, I wondered how Lazarus would sing that song. You know, for, for me to, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, you know, where's Lazarus fit in that whole uh, scheme of things? For me to, to, to live as Christ, to die as Christ, to live again as gain again, to die again as more gain again? How does Lazarus sing that particular hymn? But Lazarus, it's a resurrection of mortality. He will die. Martha and Mary will die. The 5,000 that Jesus fed earlier, they will die. The woman at the well, she will die. The blind man will die. The lame will die. All of the people that Jesus has interacted with here will die. The sign invites us to consider 
not merely the idea of the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead, but who can do that? Who, who can do such things? And, and what does that say about life now? And what does it say about the life to come as well? Because, because if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are what? We are of all people most to be pitied if we think that all we're hoping for is a resurrection unto mortality. Lord, get me a few more years in this life. This brings us to our fifth observation, and the fifth observation is the question of faith. Now, as I noted at the beginning of this, all of our participants in these events, those with whom we have wept and felt along the way throughout this story, they immediately fall into the shadows. Immediately upon the resurrection, they go background on us. As if the Holy Spirit is saying to us, I no longer want you to be caught up in their earthly story. You have been. We've traced it along. We've wept with those who have wept, but no more. Because the question isn't ultimately about them. It is, of course, a question ultimately about us. The question is, what do we say about this? I quoted it earlier already. Martha, as Jesus has testified, then Jesus will say to her, do you believe this? And and this now becomes like, and I, I don't know if you'll know this, you can look at them later, it becomes like a Rembrandt painting. And in a Rembrandt painting, you see all of the expressions of the people in the painting reacting to what Jesus has done. But inevitably, in a Rembrandt painting, there is one face that is looking out of the picture. It's looking out of the picture, looking at you, looking at the picture, and saying to you, what do you say? What do you say about all this? This isn't just for your observation. You're designed to be brought into the story. See, see, this is where we're carried. We're we're carried from those who are just looking at the scene. And the Holy Spirit, by dropping everybody else off stage, yanks us in and says, what do you think? What do you say about this? John gives us two groups of responses here, right, to this story. Many of the Jews believed in him. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to be with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's group one. But group two is different than that. And frankly, John spends most time on group two. Group one got one verse. And his direction then quickly goes to group two. Those who went and told the Pharisees about what Jesus has done. And Leon Morris writes this, the result of miracles is always division. They always divide. Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. And the response to the miracles is a division. Many believe, others go and tell. And this brings us to our final 
observation now as we look on this scene that takes place in the council with the Sanhedrin. The final observation is the substitutionary death of the author of life. John doesn't focus on those who believe. The focus goes on those who have, as a result, go figure, of a resurrection, determined that they need to kill the one who did it. Get rid of that guy. Now, this story has all sorts, of course, of elements that foreshadow what will take place with Jesus. The death and the burial and the stone and the grave clothes. You can't, you can't not read this story as a believer familiar at all with the story of Christ and not see how this is all foreshadowing what is about to take place with Jesus himself. But in the great ironies, the resurrection triggers the calling of the council, the pronouncement of the high priest and the plans and the sentence of death draped over this entire chapter, but perhaps most importantly, this particular scene of the council and the words of Caiaphas should be, don't turn, turn to it right now, Psalm 7610. Psalm 7610 says this, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. In, in the words of a hymn that we sing that quotes that, in the wrath of man shall praise you, your designs it shall fulfill. This is the wrath of man that we are seeing here. Out of fear and out of political expediency, Caiaphas declares in essence, listen, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Conclusion, kill the problem. Get rid of the problem. Kill Jesus. Make him scapegoat. Make him the sacrificial lamb, the wrath of man. And just in case there was any ambiguity, John says, hold on, let me just stop and interpret for you what's going on here. This is a man who is the high priest and he is prophesying. He has no idea what he's saying. But he is prophesying at this particular time because in the wrath of man, even the wrath of man shall praise the Lord. And so Caiaphas prophesies of the death of the Lamb of God. And as he says, and as John says, it will be not only for the nation, but for sheep from other folds as well. For sheep from other folds, which in this particular passage are called the scattered children of God, they will be brought into one flock. Those from the nation, those from the nations, will be brought into one flock by the Good Shepherd. The sign of the death and the resurrection of Lazarus points us to leads us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He is, even though Caiaphas didn't get it, our substitute. He is, in fact, one life for many lives. And he was raised 
to immortality. We are set free, we are unbound, not merely from earthly death and the grave, but from eternal death and hell forever. By faith in Jesus unto the glory of God. What say you? So, I was writing this sermon, as is typical for me, in a public space, and I was right smack in the middle of it. And a man approached the table, a man with whom I have spoken before, and he asked, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, I'm preaching on the resurrection of Lazarus. I said it with a smile. And he goes, that's a tricky one. And I said, what's tricky about it? And he said, well, you know, Lazarus wasn't really raised from the dead. Or, or he wasn't really dead. You, you don't believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead, do you? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I actually do believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And he said, no, 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 it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Now, I like a good metaphor. Nothing wrong with a good metaphor. But a metaphor won't save you. It won't save our body and our soul. But the actual death and resurrection, not of Lazarus, but of Jesus, will. And what strikes us then at the end by these two groups that have been shown to us is the reality that the miracle of faith, the miracle that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died and was buried and was raised to life, and that through belief in Him we have life. The miracle of faith, I'm sorry, this got it for your angle this way, is greater than raising a man four days dead. Because the raising of a man of four days dead is just a way to say, get back over here. Will you believe in that? And that's the greater miracle. And that's the greater life. May the Lord grant us that kind of faith to believe it. To not just stand by and look at it. If you believe that, you will live. Lord, would you help us not to be bystanders in the faith? Not to just be looking, making casual comments about what is taking place, but to be those who are invited in and take advantage of the invitation to come into the intimacy of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and by grace to be made partakers of that life. Help us to believe. Grant to any who are here today full of doubts, faith, faith, not merely in the resurrection of Lazarus, but in the resurrection of Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen.